Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the Keech, Chumash, and Tongva tribes, the traditional custodians of the land Los Angeles that this podcast is being recorded on, as well as paying my respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to episode three of this podcast series, The Future of Being a Musician. I'm Ben Lee. Thank you, everybody, once again for the amazing feedback about episode two. Uh, It's so nice that pretty much everyone that listens to this is a musician, and this is a podcast that's made for our community. And with that in mind, there is no better guest than Sadie Dupuy, who is the guest for episode three. You might know Sadie from Speedy Ortiz. She's also done solo albums under Sad 13, has put out two books of poetry, is a music journalist, also has a record label imprint called Wax9, has collaborated with tons of people from Lizzo to the new pornographers and even myself. She did production on Born for This Bullshit on my last album, I'm Fun. Uh, She's vegan, And she's an activist in so many ways, as you're going to hear her discuss. She's really passionate about a lot of issues. But I kind of wanted to zoom in from some of the larger philosophical issues. Like, yes, she she deals with these and deals with these amazingly. And we're going to talk about Amazon boycotts and streaming platforms and, and all of that. But the theme of this podcast to me and of Sadie's career in general is the phrase community first. She is really passionate about safe spaces, harm reduction in all aspects, and just generally she has a profound care and awareness for the community around her. She has a new album out in September, Speedy Ortiz album called Rabbit Rabbit, and at the end of this episode you will hear her new single, Plus One. Without further ado, here is the chat I had with my friend, collaborator, and I would call her a local hero, Sadie Dupuy. Sadie, thank you for joining me today. Of course, Ben. It's great to see you. It's good to see you too. So the purpose of this pod series is really about creating a space where musicians and people within the music biz can talk frankly about the challenges that we're facing, but also the goal is to sort of create some sort of dialogue that has a positive spin, whether it's in terms of activism or business approaches, like ways musicians can think about their future because that's not really laid out for us at the moment, you know, the, what, what the dream is exactly. And I wanted to start with this quote of yours. There are Uh-oh. small... Yeah. Always terrifying to hear your <laughs> yeah, you're own about words to get read canceled. back to you. <laughs> <laughs> there are small concrete steps you can take to improve the community within music and outside it. There are so many ways to use the music industry for good. Let's build a better music scene. So I guess I just wanted to kind of Where get Where did into- I say that? <laughs> I'll look it up for you. I think you might have said it in Australia at Big Sound. Oh, cool. But I guess that's why I was inspired to talk to you, because I see you as someone that is really good about getting your hands dirty, whether it's in terms of running your business or as an activist or any of the causes you're passionate about. And what does that look like to you? Like, what are the things we can do to have a better music scene or a better music industry? Yeah, I think um, that particular uh speech at big sound um was about ways that i've been able to or that i've seen others use their music to enact some kind of change and i talked about um when i was in high school i made uh an album that was my first 
album. Um, embarrassing music will never <laughs> surface online, but I did uh, use the profits of its sales to benefit um, families who had been displaced in Katrina. This is in the year two, 2005, 2006 is when the um, I was working on this record. So it was like um, a realization that music could have this other purpose. Granted, I was a you know, 17-year-old. I wasn't looking to make an income off a, a solo record. Um, but I think just coming from different music scenes, different DIY scenes, different punk scenes, you know, maybe you're playing to 10 people, but there's always some kind of uh, community angle. So there were always different fundraisers to benefit people in the community or people outside of the community. Um, It felt like supporting our neighbors and uh, peers was always like very central to what was happening in these little punk scenes that, that I was in and out of. But um, do you, did you, how did you come to that? Because for most people, when they get into music, they're mostly, um, people are mostly exposed to the mainstream paradigm of what success looks like. And then like, for me, it was like Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, being a <laughs> rock star in a limo down Sunset Strip. And that like imprinted on my brain. But then the awakening to the DIY scene and punk was like a, a process. Like, how did you come to that realization or that ethos? I mean, that's not to say I didn't love huge mainstream things, um, but I started playing in bands like you. I was, you know, a little teenager, um, 12 or 13. So um, it just, I, I never expected music to be my work. It was like a thing I did with friends and a thing I did to make other friends and a thing I did to support my friends who were playing. Um so I think a lot of the DIY ethos and community ethic um, was pretty ingrained in my thoughts about what music could and should be by the time I had any inkling that it was something I could make a living off of. Um, so pretty, like, <laughs> early on in Speedy, we were always saying no to things that I'm sure record label or manager or booking agent would have liked us to have said yes to, but it was, you know, something that coming from these little basement scenes would have been so distasteful to us to be part of. Um, so whether that was, I think one of the first things I can remember doing was, was finding out that um, urban outfitters had a ton of our records in stock and learning about the homophobic, political donations of its founder and oh wow uh, i didn't know about that so we pulled all our stock from urban outfitters for many years uh, until some remedies had been made there um it would always be like you can play this festival stage and it's a crazy amount of money but it's sponsored by a sneaker company that the labor practices are pretty well documented as abhorrent uh so we would not be interested in doing something like that so to in some cases, the <laughs> it feels great to say no. Uh, I think maybe other people who've worked with us might have felt that was to our detriment, but it has not felt that way to us. So I, I think having that um, community first understanding of what playing in a band should be and c- community in a wider sense, like part of humanity, um, it's easy to say no to things that um f- feel connected to to harming others um totally but do you feel is there a is there an inherent privilege in definitely. like i look at like say filmmakers and most of the people that can afford to become filmmakers come from upper middle class and upwards socioeconomic uh families so there's a little bit of a safety net like how do you grapple with say cuz now you're like I am, you're sort of in a stage of your career where younger artists probably ask you questions and advice and, you know, you're, you're, you've, you've walked the path. So you're now in a position where you can also help others do that. But how do you grapple between the question of like the, the power of saying no and the privilege it sometimes requires to have the ability to say no? 100%. It, it 
requires a privilege to be able to say no, that I'm not counting on the $15,000 sneaker paycheck to, to make it work that month. Um, and I think a real big component is in this is that when this band, Speedier Tees, started to become successful, we all had other full-time jobs. So it really wasn't the the only way to um, make ends meet. It was kind of an, an icing on top and a fun thing to do with friends and a, and a way to see friends around the country and uh, later more globally. Um, and at this point, sometimes those paychecks would be really nice, but it's too deeply ingrained that uh, it's not worth it. I, a few years ago, I was part of a musician's boycott of Amazon um, in that we were pledging not to do it was the demands weren't the demands on Amazon were um, crucial. I, I felt and still feel basically musicians pledged not to do new exclusive work with Amazon um, while they still maintained contracts with ice. Uh, Amazon technology was being used to basically uh, surveil people and deport people. Um, there's a million reasons you could avoid Amazon. The horrific labor conditions in their warehouses that result in people's deaths, um, which escalated drastically over the pandemic, just the horrible exploitation of workers, uh, the union busting that has happened to so many of the organizers who are trying to fight for livable conditions for the workers such as being able to use the bathroom. I mean, the horror stories you read about Amazon, people dying on warehouse floors and their coworkers having to continue their shifts with their dead friend on the floor. It's, it's awful. Uh, so there's a million reasons to boycott Amazon. We asked musicians to pledge not to do exclusive content for Amazon um, while these, you know, ICBP contracts were maintained. Um, this is like... Trump time. So you're seeing stories of families in literal cages, and that is directly a result of Amazon's contracts. So around this time, the reason we uh, asked for no exclusive content is Amazon was kind of throwing out checks willy-nilly, you know, we'll fund a music video to the tune of $20,000 if the artist brands it as Amazon. Um, it just felt... Like this was one way musicians could voice support for the very real people whose lives were being devastated by Amazon's many awful practices. So a lot of people signed on to this. A lot of people wound up pulling their music from Amazon. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we weren't calling out people who continued to work with Amazon because we understand that that is a paycheck that many people need. Um, but I think it is fair and necessary for artists to decide where they're comfortable with that paycheck coming from. Um, if it's $20,000 to do a music video and you know that it's 100% blood money, uh, I everybody's got to make that call. But, but um, Yeah, how do you make that call? Because all money, to, when you trace it back, is <laughs> all blood money's money. All money's blood money, yeah. I mean, it's like... Uh, it's so funny because we were talking about using Twitter and Elon Musk and everything. And I was like, he, he's just the famous evil CEO. Yeah. Like uh, most of these guys are not great guys uh, and we're using their products. It, he's it's not really like killing one. people based on his labor practices. So there is kind of a life or death line for me at least. Right, 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 um, right. I, I'm curious about some of the other activism work you've done around the streaming stuff. And yeah, I was curious about your what your feelings are about streaming and Spotify and how you position yourself as an artist who's got a new record coming out. Sure. Um <laughs> I started this is this is my problem. I can't shut up. Uh I started complaining about Spotify online however many years ago and I would get so many hateful comments from other I I basically I remember making some jokey tweet that when you think Spotify for a playlist ad, it's essentially like thanking ExxonMobil for the privilege of like paying them $60 to fill your tank. It's like, what? 
what are you thanking them for? You maybe got 20 bucks out of this playlist ad. Um, a bunch of people replied to me that that I was somehow diminishing the dreams of smaller bands. I was like, no, I'm, I'm simply reflecting on how little actual income these playlists... I think I said this at a time when Speedy was the cover image of like four Spotify playlists simultaneously. It's like, this really isn't translating to much of anything for us. Um, I know, I'm sure you, a lot of musicians who are paying attention to their royalties, just see how imbalanced the quantity of streams is with the real income that you maybe get out of it twice when, a year. But let, let's dig, in, dig into that for a second. Yeah. You were saying you didn't see any impact on, was it on your ticket sales also? Like, did you not feel you were building an audience by getting on playlists? It's hard for me to know where people come from or how they found us. I'm not, you know, sitting at the merch table being like, did you find us from Cool Women Tuesday? (laughs) Um, You know, people will talk to me that they had a connection with a certain song or I I find a lot of people, we had a sync in a video game that is very meaningful to a lot of people. And I'd say like a third of the people I meet at a show are like, I found you through the Life is Strange soundtrack. I love that. Um, Uh, Was that the one... Was that the one where someone had like a book? It was like a teenage girl. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my stepdaughter was so into that. I didn't know. I never played it, but I remember yeah. her talking about it. And she loved all the music. For it. So that is a great example of like she would have discovered you that way. Yeah. Or I love hearing like, you know, I heard you through my brother and we have this connection over a certain song. Those kinds of things are meaningful to me. Um, I love hearing, I heard you on the radio. I love hearing that uh, a college station was into a certain song and that's how someone found it. Um, You're certainly not an artist though that was like, Spotify playlists changed my career. Yeah, yeah, no. It was just another thing going on, yeah. It's another thing going on and kind of an, an anonymous thing for the people who are putting together those playlists. There's not really an... Um, are there people doing that? I didn't know dep- if there's actually I think actually it depends on the playlist, but there okay. are, yeah, yeah. I believe there are editorial. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I know because a lot of, <laughs> if I back up a little further, my, I was a music journalist for a couple years before I, I did, <laughs> before I quickly realized it was too hard for me to freelance. Of course, now I'm back to that. Um, a lot of my friends who were in editorial wound up doing editorial for these streaming companies and putting together playlists or um, granted those jobs seem to evaporate and have little stability. We just look at all the podcast companies that Spotify acquired that they just gutted last week. Um, So there are people part of it, but it's like, you know, it's all under the, the monolith branding of the corporation. So it's not like I can say, Oh my, I'll think of someone who, Maura Johnston is a writer whose music taste I love. And if she recommends something, I'm frequently very excited to follow that. You're not really getting that kind of interpersonal connection by discovering things through the the playlist ad. Um, and now that there's all these other layers to it, the payola adjacent component where you can accept slightly lower royalties for the possible chance of prioritized playlisting, Oh, is that true? I, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Okay, so that when you upload a new single or something, does it give you that option? I believe it's just um, you have to opt for that for your entire. Wow. I, I don't. Granted, I don't. I'm lucky. I don't have to do any of this stuff for us. So, how does like running? What type of ethics or principles do you, as a label manager, like what what do you try and implement in your community community building through your label that you see sort of missing in the wider you know, industry? So my label is through uh, Car Park, who have been Speedy's label for a long time. Um, it's an imprint of Car Park and shares the same staff. So um, I will say that that having worked with Car Park for, God, I guess 11, 10, year, 10 years at this point, I, I feel like we got really lucky because their contracts were very fair. Um I think it's given me a lot of perspective when friends are negotiating a contract for the first time um, that I know what can be, what can be done and what can be standard. Um, So they've always been very um, not only fair, but supportive of these things that we feel strongly about. Like I remember um, maybe back in like 2013, 
a lot of artists on labels wouldn't put their whole thing up to stream on Bandcamp. It would be, you could have the singles up on Bandcamp, but you have to purchase it to hear the whole thing. Um, and I remember feeling frustrated that paying for a subscription was the only way you could opt to hear music before deciding to purchase it. Um, it felt to me that if we made our whole, the whole record available, to, I mean, this is like so funny now because this is the the standard thing now, but a lot of labels wouldn't put the whole record on on Bandcamp or any kind of streaming platform that wasn't these subscription models that that pay you tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of pennies. Um, and they were supportive of that. And they let us put the record up on Bandcamp to stream in full. Um, they let us pull catalog from Urban Outfitters and from Amazon, uh, ultimately, um, where we did pull catalog. Um, so I think that working with Car Park, which is a small team, um, but they're very thoughtful and they work really hard. And uh, I think they're in it for reasons I support has taught me a lot about how to approach um, the artists on Wax9. And also knowing, you know, there there's certainly things less so in the ethical realm, but there are things that I've said yes to when we're touring or in a press cycle that I just like wish someone had talked me through. Uh, so I'm happy to be able to offer some of that. Can you give an example of of one of those? I'd be curious. I certainly exhausted myself for the first several years of touring because it felt like every single opportunity, and I'm going to put that in scare quotes, was something that we should latch onto because it may not happen, you know, other than the ones that that were morally dubious. uh, We'd be doing radio session that morning in store that afternoon and show that night. And then you got to drive overnight from Durham to Atlanta. And then you're completely exhausted. You're getting sick. You're not going to cancel a show because you're sick. Um, you're also taking a, an interview and the questions are a little intrusive, but you feel you have to be polite. So you just talk through them anyway. Um, I think just ha- having someone to bounce this stuff off of <laughs> to ask, is this normal? Is this necessary? Is really helpful. Yeah, I remember talking to Billy Corgan at some point right after Smashing Pumpkins broke up the first time and he just said the advice he never got was that it was okay to say no to things. Yeah. And particularly coming through the 90s where it just was like it was like a gold rush for alternative music and it did feel like oh my god, you better take the ride now or mm-hmm. you never know when the door's going to open. And I think we all you know, artists are lucky actually to experience a moment like that where a door does open, but the inherent scarcity that a lot of us have as creative people that are just basically trying to make a living doing what we love, it is very hard. It's very hard to say no to things. as And what I find even harder to say no to is when it is like a, it's easier for me to say no to Amazon than it is to like, a 15 year old's zine. I always want to support the people who are just starting out. And I always want to support the college stations because that's how I learned anything about music. Um, but then sometimes I have to take a, a, a zoom out and think if I do all of these things, I will not be able to do <laughs> most of the rest. Totally. Um, so you have a more, you have a higher sort of demand of sort of self-care as you go through the process now of promoting a record and than you did in your 20s. Sure, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also that, like, I remember uh, our first couple records, we'd go on tour and not come home for, like, four months. Um, and if we were home, we were home for maybe five days and then we're back out again. We don't, come back with not... no money. It was always like you'd be gone for so long and come back with like the same financials <laughs> like, or less. Well, we would, you know, we're sleeping on, we're still sleeping yeah, on yeah, people's yeah. couches and floors. So we do okay. Uh, but it's just not so can you tour? Can you tour though at a level that you're not losing money now? Because I mean, this is like a, a bit of a taboo thing to talk about, but I think a lot of audiences don't realize that artists who are not in that top, top 1% have sort of been convinced that touring now is a promotional thing. Mm. Um, it's crazy how many artists are not making money on tour, like decent-sized so artists. So we have only lost money on one tour ever. It was a big support tour fly-in situation where we had to rent back on. It's the only time we've ever lost money on a tour, which is great, uh, but 
you know, <laughs> as you're saying, a lot of artists uh, lose money on tour. That's because they're paying for things that we are like so uh, shy about pulling the trigger on. Like it, we'll stay at somebody's second cousin's second cousin's place where it's like one short couch and then floor space. Um, and that's because the 150 bucks you'd spend on a couple hotel rooms that night eat really <laughs> eats in every single day. So we tour very econo. Um, as I'm now, I'm turning 35 next month. Uh, it's time. Chronic it's time pain. To, yeah, I got all yeah, these yeah, other yeah, things, yeah. but I'm also like, <laughs> but we need to make an income if we're going to justify yeah. doing these things. So we've gotten more selective about what we'll do in terms of support tours. We don't, we don't do very many of them. Um, and when we do, it's because we're, you know, it's someone we love and we're being compensated fairly. Yeah. Yeah. Having been offered so many support tours that have embarrassingly low guarantees, we, we are trying to um, offer a fairer guarantee when we take out support, which also cuts into the profit at the end of the day. So, um, but it, it, it just feels like we have to raise that bar somehow where support bands aren't being paid the $250 they were being paid 30 years ago. Yeah, I've been saying to artists, if you're lucky enough to have some kind of safety net to invest in your career at the very beginning, do it for two years the way anyone would with a small business. Mm. Like if people open a sandwich shop, they basically budget in two years of running at a loss before they would even expect to be profitable. And that's, you know, within a capitalist system that is sort of like a reasonable expectation of investment. But I think for artists to be 10 years deep, 15 years deep into their careers and losing money on things, on the promise of exposure or whatever, it's a crazy just way of approaching something and a non-sustainable way of approaching something you want to do forever. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, again, this just speaks to having wound up randomly... Uh, <laughs> randomly in a band anyone cared about. I was always in bands. I was always going to be in bands, but I never, ever thought it would be the day job. Um, and the only reason I decided it could be, I, I was teaching at uh, a university and I granted, we all know that adjunct pay is fairly meager, but it was enough to, to live and also do other projects, um, other projects like touring. So I, I'd be teaching, you know, three days a week. And then I'd take a long weekend to do some touring with the band. And at some point, I want to say end of 2013, I realized that my income from the band was close to and a little bit more than my income from the teaching. And I was only, you know, doing shows basically on weekends and on school vacations. So that was sort of what empowered us all to, to at that time quit our day jobs and try to dive into it full time. Amazing. And so wait, I want to go back to the, but this is because camp. we sleep yeah. on like a warehouse. Yeah. Floor you, and... keep, you keep your overheads really low. <laughs> I know it's funny when um, I remember in like the, in the nineties, um, I remember reading an interview with Moby and he was like, if I was a business manager, the advice I would give every artist is learn to DJ. Because it's the thing you can do with the lowest overhead. Oh, I do all kinds and, of stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I wanted to chat about Bandcamp because you yeah. seem to, that's a distribution system that you seem to really stand behind. Like sure. you believe in it. What, what's Especially the now that uh, Bandcamp Union has been recognized. Yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit about Bandcamp. Well. And, yeah. Tell me about uh, what for, first drew you to that and what's the current state of it and why is it so appealing? Sure. I went over to, to Bandcamp from myspace.com, as many of us did around the year 2008 or nine. Um, it was just a great way to, to have your music available to, to purchase and to play um, without using like what, CD Baby, which I think, did CD Baby just end? So let's see. Yeah, my, my bands were just always on Bandcamp from from around that time and when i started to do speedy ortiz it was a a total side project from my my regular band it was my solo thing where i had played all the instruments and it was home recorded very lo-fi um and i just put it up there and in 2011 
And immediately people liked it better than my previous band. And there was this cool community of people who were just scouring Bandcamp to find uh, different artists. And certainly I was very interested in like expanding my Bandcamp collection on my personal profile. And uh, a great way to book tours at that time was just to search for the tags. Like say you're trying to book Syracuse, then you look at all the bands who are in Syracuse and you pick out an album. It's similar to, you know, browsing a record store, pick out the album cover you like and check it out. And maybe that's not your thing, but the next thing is, and now you've got a friend in Syracuse and you're going to play their basement. So in the way that like the, the DIY forums and the, the phone book before that, um, Bandcamp became this great way to meet other like-minded artists around the country and, um, trade shows with one another so uh that was sort of how speedy got its start and then once we were on a label one other utility we really liked um on Bandcamp was that it's so easy to see what your sales are any particular day you're not waiting the the three six twelve months to see a royalty statement you can see oh it's Bandcamp friday we made this much this day from this particular song so around, I think in 2014 was the first time we did like a band camp fundraiser. We were um, raising money for the Baltimore Food Bank. And it was just very easy to say like, everything you buy this weekend digitally that we have, <laughs> the things that we have the rights to, to uh, pay out from, we're going to donate to this place. And we wound up continuing to do that um, over the years. A lot of artists do that. Um, and Bandcamp has kind of, in, in, I don't think that was an initial goal of, of the organization, but with the Bandcamp Fridays and the Juneteenth fundraisers and a couple others that they do, um, I think they've realized that's a great utility of the platform, the sort of immediacy of uh, sales numbers that can help artists um, forward it elsewhere if they, if they so choose. Awesome. Awesome. And what happened recently with their workers unionized? Yes. Yeah. Band. Bandcamp union, uh, I know we were playing in Pittsburgh. So I have a, a couple of friends who um, have been part of the union organizing at Bandcamp, and it's been an ongoing project for many years. Um, and we were playing in Pittsburgh last month, and uh, they'd been recognized that day. And, and someone from the Bandcamp union was there, and we were so we were like, "You're a celebrity to us! Like, congratulations on amazing!" Uh, so that I know the negotiations, contract negotiations are ongoing, but. Um, that's Hopefully, a, great things for for those workers who are the reason that Bandcamp is the thing that we love to use. That is awesome. Is I guess we first met or started emailing when after Adam Schlesinger died. Our mutual yeah, friend, is that you, true? We must have met so, each other John, before that. I feel like John Strom connected us, or maybe we'd like in I don't know. We, we I feel like we were internet someone. buddies. Maybe, maybe, but I feel like that was when we really started, like you know, chatting. Um, but. Uh, it was so amazing what you put together. You you put together this incredible lineup of tribute um, of Adam Schlesinger's songs covered by all different people. And I guess I'm just, you know, not every musician has the ability that you do. I think I have it too. The, the ability to have an idea and then take the action to do it. it it's actually, mm. it's very rare because it's not just, you don't just have to have the vision. You have to have like logistical skills. You have to be able to organize your day. You have to be not scared of dealing with people or with money or with, you know. Sure. And I just, and again, maybe this comes back to, it's it's something I'm trying to reckon with in these conversations, which is artists like you and I might be outliers in the sense of self-determination we feel about choosing what we want to do and not want to do. Mm. Um some some artists are very fragile and they're very sensitive and it's like i think very hard for them to tackle life and the industry head on and i just wonder if you've worked with artists like that that are not as outgoing and not as like take life by the throat and how you can support them in feeling empowered in the current climate does that make sense yeah that's interesting Something that I think has been very helpful to me in knowing how to start and finish a project um, is 
I did all these random, <laughs> I did all these random jobs for so many years. Um, I, you know, have been working random jobs since I was 13 years old. Um, and I think the more kinds of experience you pick up, the easier it becomes to envision how to tackle different kinds of projects. Um, and I'm also, so, so the, the Adam Schlesinger project that, that we worked together on, um, was a collaboration between Wax9 and, um, Father Daughter Records, which is run by Jesse Frick. And Jesse and I have been friends for many years. I did a, a flexi disc for Father Daughter's flexi disc postcard series maybe 10 years ago. Um, but we'd never worked on a project together in a bigger scale um, than that. And something, something that has been like getting disappointed by people you work with is a really helpful learning tool for me. I think a lot of the skills that I have are because someone didn't quite get it right or someone kind of dropped the ball and I'm like, I guess I better figure out how to fix this or pick up the slack. So in the pandemic that I now know how to use every kind of pro editing software, unfortunately, every time I learn a new thing, I'm like, God damn it. I didn't want to know more. The cables, um, the cables. <laughs> I never got uh, into it to deal with this many cables. Not even the cables. I'm like, why do I know how to edit a music video now? Why do I know how to animate and Photoshop? Um, so we've had a couple rounds of managers in Speedy Ortiz, um, some better than others. Some I'm still really good friends with, even though it wasn't a good work fit. Some dropped the ball so drastically that we lost money, opportunities, all kinds of, you know, they communicated unkindly on our behalf. Um, so even that, which was a negative experience, taught me how to do it better. So I'm, I'm very good at uh, self-managing and, you know, learning different kinds of tasks or projects when I need to. Um, and one thing I'll say, working on that project with Jesse, we wound up hiring Jesse to manage Speedy um, maybe like a year later, just because I know that our work styles are compatible. And when I can't figure something out, that's some, maybe that's something Jesse can do or uh, vice versa. So, so appropriate delegation and outsourcing is always going to be part of the model of engaging with the business. You can't do everything yourself. Sure. But I think also knowing how to do, like, even when I, I've delegated something to Jesse, I want to be on CC. I want to, I want to know how the sausage is getting made and I want to be able to hop in and help in case, um, you know, <laughs> well, I'm not going to keep using this sausage metaphor. I just read Jamie Loftus's really good book, uh, Raw Dog, which is about the history of the hot dog and all these regional political histories and like a labor history. It's really good, but right. hot dogs are on my mind. Um, <laughs> anyway, read Raw Dog by Jamie Loftus. But I, I think uh, a lot of artists who, who want to shy away from these kinds of things, that's totally valid. I think there's a part of me that also likes the adrenaline of like, oh shit, this has to get done in five days and whoever was hired dropped the ball. I guess I better learn. Um, yeah. Well, you have a producer quality, which I have too, which it, it's you. It's kind of a fun challenge to wrangle all the right parts into uh -huh. some kind of cohesive whole. It's a yeah. fun challenge, yeah. And yeah. I'll say I also... Uh, I didn't get diagnosed till like four years ago, but I have ADHD. And so I would never have been diagnosed with this as a child because I'm on the hyper-focus side of the spectrum. And girls um, also apparently get diagnosed mm -hmm. much less frequently. Because it manifests differently depending on how you're socialized. And you're not trying to light the school desk on fire. so No, no I'm trying to like, you know... <laughs> Whatever to my super academic past, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's to have four hundred kinds of jobs and uh, work from eight a.m. to eleven p.m. every day. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I ask a question about balancing the artistic side with the business savvy or the activist side? Yeah. Uh, something I struggle with. A lot of my peers, our peers use Patreon, right? Or various mm-hmm. other paywalled types of distribution systems. I I spent an hour with Amanda Palmer on the phone once where she pitched me Patreon very convincingly to the point that I set up a profile. I never did anything with it. Okay. I struggle with, there's a part of me that believes being a musician is it's got to be there for everybody. Like mm. I I want everything I do to – it's not that I believe everyone's going to hear it, but I believe everyone has to have the chance to have an accidental interaction with my work. Otherwise, if I remove that accidental interaction, I'm truly becoming an elitist in some sense. And, and I do believe I've always wanted to make work that was – I'm kind of – a, a populist in the way I, I'm a, I'm a mixture of an elitist and a populist, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I, I, I believe in, um, I believe in gatekeeping my own work in the sense that I want smart, savvy people to have the opportunity to interact with it, you know, given the, given the right circumstances. So I just struggle in general with this idea of paywalling my work. Because of the Patreon thing with podcasting, it's something I know. Well, this is basically why I wanted our music to be able to be streamed on Bandcamp 10 years ago, because it didn't sit right to me that you should be paying a third party, a subscription service to decide whether to, you know, the, 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 the goal of Spotify when it first crawled around was people will listen to this and buy the record. It will increase your record sales. I don't always know that that's true. Um, and why should the paywall exist for someone to decide to to purchase the physical media? Um, so I, I'm similar to you. I set up a, I did do a Bandcamp subscription during the pandemic because there were a bunch of, everyone was just trying everything because yeah, suddenly course. the touring income was cut off. Um, and it's I all still, fair too. Like my whatever my personal feelings are, I have no judgment on any. If you can survive in the music business, I honor you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> similar. Uh, I haven't really engaged with Patreon. Um, I mean, to, to, you know, I have a, a, I've published books. They're not available for free as digital copies. So I think it kind of depends on the the kind of media you're engaging with and who you're releasing it with, um, whether you can make that call to have your work distributed for free. But certainly I support the library model and wish that more, um, digital media could fall under that category where where folks are able to get um, records from their public library as they are able to get my book, for example. Or um, did you grow up with movies. that? Because we could borrow. We borrow. I borrowed cassettes. From they the they library. did have yeah, yeah CDs at the library for sure, yeah. but it hasn't really, um, with the exception of a few libraries, uh, streaming has not really entered that system, which I think would be incredible. Totally, totally. Do you have, I mean, we're in an unknown precipice of this, but I'm curious just talking to musicians about your feelings, concerns, inspirations around AI and that conversation. Mm, uh, Is there going to be a uh, speedy record that uh, someone else <laughs> programs and that no, you're, no, you no. license your voice and likeness to? And you know, God. this is there's all these possibilities coming. Um, Would you let a fan create something that sounds like you? It's using your voice and you singing it. Would you be interested no. in that? Okay. <laughs> to you, it's worth talking about. <laughs> I, I, I'd be interested if it was a if it was a smart 
person who had an actual idea and approached me and said, you know, I'll cut why you in can't on they this. just what would it- hire you to sing the song? Uh, why can't they hire me to sing the song? <laughs> why can't the um, human just do the the project? You're here. You're you're alive. You've got at yeah, least an hour question. of time that's to be out of question. my. That's a good question. I'm available. Yeah, I'm available. I'm available. Uh, but what about if it was? What if I wrote a song that I was like, God, this song Johnny Cash would have sung this amazingly. I want to create oh, the, the, the sound the of I want to release a new Johnny AI Cash. Legacy yeah, yeah, yeah. Is so stressful to me. That's what I want to hear about that. I want to, what this whole thing is like stressful to all of us. So we got to talk about it. It completely <laughs> eliminates the consent of the artist to be involved or to have their likeness distributed and profited off. Well, well, it, it eliminates that for artists up, up until now. But I think these are things that as we leave behind, like I've always said to my daughter, whatever my catalog is worth, that's, I'm leaving that to you. You got to mm-hmm. manage that. You got to hopefully create some income for that for yourself and your kids. Like when you, but there's when no gone. way we can barely keep the royalties of our songs in our hands while we are alive and able to fight over it and pick it outside of Spotify's offices. What makes you think that licensing? That, I've done pretty well with licensing for commercials. I could foresee a situation where I just don't think the AI would stay in people's hands. I mean, look at how these are all trained, right? The so my my feelings about AI are admittedly very influenced by my friends who are illustrators, cartoonists, uh, any kind of graphic artists, because I feel like the first chat GPT thing that came out was these, um, what is it called? It had some funny name. The illustration. Dolly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it comes out that Dolly's just been, I mean, Dolly, first of all, was producing a lot of racist things, uh, which is troubling, but it's also trained on artists work and they're not, compensated for their work being fed into that machine to train a a robot to poorly replace them. But that's the end goal, right? That major corporations don't have to pay the artists to illustrate that Coca-Cola billboard. Um, Major, now that the ChatGPT in the writing realm is infiltrating newsrooms, you know, it's infiltrating all kinds of writing. We have writers on strike on... (laughs) both coasts every day picketing uh, because they're not being compensated fairly. And this isn't, this is a way to replace people's labor that um, is skilled. And I just don't see a a good, I don't see, I don't see a good outcome in having more, um, more control caught away from artists so that a free robot can replace them and do, like a, a hack job of it. It's fair enough. So remember like when Adam Yauk died from the Beastie Boys, he set in his will that he, for all future cases, does not approve the use of any Beastie Boys song in any commercial anything. He set up a very challenging predicament for a band with two living members that continue in um in a changing ecosystem. But I sure. wonder if we'll have to if we feel the same way when we're, you know, on our deathbeds, if we'll have to leave some kind of instruction that our image and our likeness and our voice are not to be used in some way like that. I, I think it's going to become you more You might have normal. to. I don't think I have to worry about that. But <laughs> You never know. You never know. Uh, only um, Subaru commercials. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so yeah, just is there are there any other areas of concern for like you know musicians thinking ahead of like what does my future look like besides these sort of core issues I've been touching on? Like I wonder from your perspective, like you know I think because like I had someone write to me about accessibility. Mm, yeah, um, I know you've been involved in like conversations around safe spaces, uh, you know, for audiences. I don't know. I'm just curious from your perspective, like what what else is sort of concerning you about? Yeah, for for sure, the accessibility of venues is a major um, conversation and something that a lot of folks who are not me have done really good work to try to change. There's that, um, is this venues accessible database that basically lists any potential accessibility concerns of uh, of venues. Uh, a lot of venues have been asked to list 
their accessibility restrictions and are complying with this, which is crucial because someone gets to a venue and finds they have to walk up two flights of stairs. That can be the difference of them using their ticket that night or not. Uh, I think live streaming certainly entered the conversation of um, accessibility in that many people are not able to go to concert venues, but still would like to see the performance. So I know post pandemic, some venues have continued to offer a way to stream the concert um, for people at home, which is really cool. Um, Something that I got interested in however many years ago was um, safer spaces. And uh, this partially inspired by displaying places that had them clearly and prominently displayed. Um, The pin hook is always an example that I love to shout out. Really great venue in Durham. Um, A lot of the, DIY clubs around New York were f- including safer spaces policies. Um, wait, wait, can you go into that just for a little bit? Because I'm not. What I does don't it know mean? Exactly what the policies are? It basically can speak to what kinds of, you know, that that language, uh, certain kinds of language and harassment um, will not be tolerated at the venue. Um, what to do if by you see artists it happening? Or audience by by either. Yeah, it's like yeah. A, it's an agreement between people working the venue, people attending the show and the artists. Um, And in some cases that, so we were able to work with uh, JJ Skolnick, who's another organizer at at Bandcamp uh, prior to their work at Bandcamp was doing trainings in de-escalation. And this basically teaches you how to intervene and to help someone out. If you see them experiencing harassment or something else at a show, um, So we started to distro information about de-escalation. We started to distro Shauna Potter's book, which is called Making Spaces Safer. And it includes a lot of information for how venues can make policy changes or staffing changes or structural changes to make their concert venues more inclusive and accessible. Um, And we actually still give that out on tour. We bought a bunch of... It's like a, there's two versions of the book. One's a longer one and the the smaller one's more of a chat book. It's like I'm going to order that. That's cool. I haven't it's really that. cool. Yeah. So we give that out to promoters and day of show contacts when we're on tour. Um, I've seen a lot more venues posting their safer spaces policies over the past, you know, eight years. Uh, it was not something we saw very frequently when we first started doing this kind of um work where we, you know, put into our writer, hate speech is not tolerated, racism is not tolerated, harassment is not tolerated. Um, Here's how to deescalate when you see this happening. And something that we did around that time too was started a hotline that people could text if they were experiencing harassment at a show. Um, The idea being that we could help them get backstage or get to a safe space. Um, we, We kind of have shifted away from, I mean, it's still up and operational. Um, but I think the thing that has been more that we've felt is more effective is helping the venues to learn how to set things up like this for themselves. And, and, um, I have seen a lot more venues with these policies posted or with a phone number that someone can reach out to if they're experiencing a problem at a show. Um, it's, I feel like it's, it's more sensical for someone who goes to Bowery ballroom all the time to just have Bowery ballroom text hotline in their phone. Then like speedier tease is here every year and a half. <laughs> like, right, let me right, see right. if I can dig their number up from 2015. That uh, de-escalation then- stuff is so crucial. There's actually, um, you know, River Phoenix's mom, Heart Phoenix, who started the River Phoenix uh, Center for Peace Building. Oh, wow. And it's, it's a whole, it, it kind of went, the conversation around peace building sort of went hand in hand with the conversation about defunding the police Mm. um, because it was about going in and training both uh, police departments, but also security and people like that on um, conflict resolution in nonviolent ways. And it was so important. And this is part of why we included our forwarding number that forwards to our touring party when we started doing this, because so frequently when there had been an issue at a venue, talking to security would not help or would escalate things because security had not been trained in, you know, it's, it's the hired agency for the night and they don't know anything about the 
clientele or what might make the situation worse. Yeah. Yeah, It's like private security, private army. Um, and so kind of growing out of that, um, recognizing, you know, that making resources available to, to venues and to concert goers was something that could make our, our shows or, or maybe other people's shows who saw us doing this a, a better place to, to be in a safer place to be. Um, we started to work with different harm reduction organizations as well on tour. So this is something that when you say like, what's the thing that's really important, this has been the the main thing that has been really important to me in the past few years, because I've lost so many friends to overdose, um, to opioid overdose. And this is a preventable death if you have the right supplies and training on hand. Um, and people use drugs in every corner of work and entertainment and, um, you know, in your communities. Uh, but as a musician, that feels like a space where we can, where I can, um, help prevent death in my community. So we've started to have different groups or we are able to do it ourselves, depending on where we are, uh, distribute Narcan or Naloxone, which is the same medication, just no spray or injectable. Um, and it, all, all this medication can do is prevent an overdose that's occurring. So we've had, I mean, the, the, so wait, you're distributing that to venues that you're going to go and play at? We do it at, at the shows. So if people want to come up to the merch table, they're able to pick up N- Narcan, the nasal version, um, wow. or the intramuscular naloxone, depending on where it is. And we don't always get to do this. It, it basically depends on whether there is a local group that's able to work with us. Um, so your merch or whether person the laws- is not dependent. They're not the one that has to be like teaching people how to administer it or something if they come up that, to the merch. That who's show. not teaching Your people? merch, the person that you're doing your merch. <laughs> the person doing the merch. It's like yeah. me or okay, you know, you someone else in the band. It's really easy to, to use these medications and there's um, video of how to distribute it. Um, that's amazing. And then, so so Narcan now is available everywhere by federal order. Only as of like a month ago, uh, it used to be that depending on what state you were in, you couldn't have it. Um, thank God that's not the case anymore because we lose so many people to overdose every day. Again, it's preventable. All this medication can do is reverse overdose. Um, but there's other things that are still question marks in the harm reduction uh, policy world. Like you can test for fentanyl with test strips. And in some states, we can give that out. In some states, that's illegal. Why would that be illegal? All it can do is test for a substance that could kill you. Uh, we, we still have a lot of pretty archaic and corporal drug laws that just don't help keep people alive. So mm. um, we're definitely grateful to get to work with these different harm reduction groups. There's a, a new one um, called This Must Be The Place, and they've been destroying at major music festivals. I know they, they did Bonnaroo last summer. They probably are doing it this summer. Um, and they just give out Narcan to people who are at a festival and might encounter someone experiencing an overdose and save their life. Uh, that's so powerful. And just being able to have those conversations within music communities that aren't based around shame or like, you know, that abstinence is the only way, um, I think the only way that we keep people with us is to understand that, that people use drugs and, and need resources, public health resources. So uh, definitely have been very grateful to get to work with people doing that really important work. And yeah. That's amazing. That's you're, you're incredible. Is yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's so much good. St- I'm so You could excited. do it. If you want to know some, some groups that might table for you, let me know. Well, you know what? I'd, I'd also just love in general, yeah, whether it's them or there's anyone else that lights you up about, you know, leading the way forward. I definitely love, yeah, some tips. I'm building a little list. Yeah. I mean, the, this must be the place is the one I'd, I'd shout out first and foremost. There's different groups, different places. Um, some are more above ground than others. Some are like anonymous street medics who are doing just as crucial work and reaching just as many, if not many more people in terms of um, how much naloxone they're able to, to distribute. But so this um, must be the place are they're specifically focused on agency sort of a, a, it's a nonprofit yeah, an organization yeah, and they're organization, specifically yeah. focused on, on uh, music and live music. Ah, that's so, amazing. 
awesome getting getting these materials into festivals where a lot of people are using drugs and like having a good time and and don't uh don't deserve to have those resources denied them lastly before we go tell us a little bit about this incredible new record that's coming out oh in pretty soon right when's your album uh, coming out? it'll be out in september that's all right good we build just up drip those singles a couple yeah. weeks ago <laughs> so you did this one with sarah tudson right yep Yep, Illuminati yep. Hotties, mutual friend of ours. Yes. Um, excellent producer too. Yeah, she's um, great. And you did it out in the desert? Mm-hmm. We did it. We did basic tracking at Rancho de la Luna in Joshua Tree, um, a studio I've long been very curious about. And Matt Sweeney told me that every band should do one record there. I was like, well, Hey, if Matt Sweeney Good says it, you got to do it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we went, and uh, David Catching, who runs the studio, was was there for the whole session, as he is for every session there. And um, especially, we tracked this. Um, I guess it was March of last year. None of us had been on a plane. Uh, wait, yeah, last year. None of us had been on a plane since the pandemic. We really hadn't even spent unmasked time together since the pandemic, other than you know rehearsals that we test for COVID and did everything as COVID safe as possible. Um, so it was just like amazing to not only get to have this experience with all my, my band, my bandmates who are my best friends uh, to get to go to this beautiful place, but also to meet David, who's just such a lovely, inspiring, um, brilliant person. And then to have Sarah with us, another one of my, my best buds. So it was really cool to get to, to do it there after so much time not together and not going anywhere. And um, yeah. And what are the songs? I, don't know, I hate the term about, but like, what's mm-hmm. the, what's this project? What's the vibe of this aside from where the specialness of where it was recorded? Sure. Um, or the aesthetic. Or, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly some songs where I <laughs> joke that I'm like on my whole call field bullshit. Uh, <laughs> there's some, Songs that are specifically about um, striking workers and union busting companies, things that made me very angry to watch in the early days of the pandemic and prior to that. Um, so the, the couple singles that have been out so far, the first one is called Scabs, and that was written about uh, just overhearing people in the post office um, being uncool to a, a male worker. And this was like right in the middle of pretty widely reported uh, and and postal union opposed budgetary cuts and changes to staffing and hours and and all kinds of things that just made like mail work more untenable than it already has been. Um, So I kind of wrote it first about that, but then it became more widely about um, people who are happy to cross a picket line for personal convenience, uh, despite being vocally yard signy um so then and that does sort of tie to some of the other themes of the record like some of them are of course about the outrage at um climate injustice at labor injustice at all the things that make me furious on a day-to-day basis but like so many people in the pandemic um i had to reckon with parts of my past that I've just been completely avoiding due to being on tour 10 months of the year. Um, I write, I I interview artists for different publications, but I also write a lot of artists bios. So I get the behind the scenes stuff that maybe doesn't make it to the press release. And it was wild to, to hear how many people were reckoning with their own childhood trauma for the first time, figuring out what makes them, uh, why they have these specific kinds of anger responses. And that was, one of the things that was really um, this is the hardest record I've had to write because I was going back to um, childhood trauma and abuse that I had dealt with as a child that I had not ever wanted to talk about or ever wanted to write about and was content to just work, 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 not deal, not deal, not deal. Um, So I was writing through some of that for the first time. And um, I feel really thankful that I have such great, like bandmates and friends like Sarah Tudson, uh, people that I was kind of able to work through this material for the first, for the first time, not material, work through these memories for the first time uh, Mm. in a musical format. That's amazing. Three weeks with next door and only 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.